the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 10. The Battle of Calidion. The location of this week's episode is in the far southwest corner of the modern country of Bulgaria, where the borders of three countries meet, namely Bulgaria, North Macedonia and Greece. The specific location of Klidion is identified as the modern Bulgarian village of Kluch. This area was on the northern fringes of the ancient kingdom of Macedon, that emerged in the early 1st millennium BCE. To the east was the area referred to historically as Thrace, and the very important land route to the Hellespont, the waterway separating Europe from Asia. During the 6th century BCE, those Asian lands would come under the rule of the Achaemenid Persians, who became very interested in invading the Balkan Peninsula, which was the home of the ancient Greeks. The treacherous sea route from Persia to Greece was across the Aegean Sea. The land route would pass through the kingdom of Macedon. The Achaemenid Persians initially made the Macedonians their vassals before absorbing them into their empire on their way to do battle with the Athenians, initially at Marathon and then at Thermopylae. The Athenians and their Greek allies resisted the Persians and the Persians retreated back to Asia, allowing the Macedonians to gain their independence and allowing an Adrician kingdom to emerge in the lands of Thrace. The 4th century BCE marked the steep rise of the kingdom of Macedon and its transition into a powerful empire, mainly due to the exploits of Alexander the Great. The Odrysian kingdom was quickly absorbed during the reign of Alexander's father, Philip II. After the death of Alexander, his diadochi, or successors, battled to rule all of his lands, including the Odrysian kingdom and the core of the kingdom of Macedon. But essentially the two kingdoms were restored to a very similar area of rule as before, with the respective thrones being challenged for by competing dynasties. The next major geopolitical shift came in the 2nd century BCE when the Kingdom of Macedon was conquered and absorbed into the Roman Republic, bringing them onto the borders of the Odrysian Kingdom. In the following century, the Romans overcame their civil wars and began to create the circumstances that led to its transition into an empire with an emperor. 
and this marked the point where the Odrysian kingdom was turned into a subject Thracian state of the Roman Empire. So now this area would be very much a part of the Roman Empire as a part of the Greek-speaking Macedonian province. Due to the geographical location of the area and the language of the people, it would naturally become part of the eastern provinces when the time came to determine which half of the Roman Empire that this area would fall under. The definitive political split between the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire came at the end of the 4th century and the Eastern Roman Empire would effectively be the entity which we refer to as the Byzantine Empire going forward. The Byzantine Empire When the Western Roman Empire lost control of its territories and its identity, as Germanic tribes and leaders took control during the 5th century, the Byzantine Empire continued to recognise itself as the remainder of the Roman Empire from this time onwards, and very early on in its existence, the Byzantine Empire saw itself as having a duty to re-establish Roman imperial dominance over the lands of the Mediterranean. Certainly when Justinian the Great was the emperor during the 6th century, he would look to bring the lost lands of the Western Roman Empire into the Byzantine realm. However, the strength of the Germanic tribes coupled with the usual internal political disputes would prevent the Roman Empire ever becoming the kind of expansive empire that it was during the reigns of Trajan and Hadrian, 4th centuries previous. It would take a long time for the Byzantines to accept that those days were gone and that the world had changed. Since the days of the First Triumvirate, the Romans had waged war with the imperial movements of the lands of Persia. Firstly with the Parthians, and then after the decline of the Parthians, with their successors, the Sasanians. The Byzantines and the Sasanians intensified their conflicts with each other at the end of the 6th and beginning of the 7th centuries, and this would have a detrimental effect on both empires, who would have been completely unaware of the emerging threat from the south as an Arab kingdom based in the Hejaz began to draw neighbouring lands into its imperial reach based around its religious preachings of the action of Islam. This Islamic caliphate would be able to capitalise on the weakness of the Byzantines and the Sasanian Persians by wiping Sassanid Persia off the map and taking the Levantine and North African lands of the Byzantines. This would teach the Byzantines that they were not strong enough to be able to have a Mediterranean empire, and that they needed to be content with a nation restricted to the Balkans and Anatolia, plus some overseas territory in southern Italy. The expansionist attitudes of Justinian had turned into defensive strategies, but the Byzantines had one of the most defensible capital cities known to history at Constantinople, with its impressive walls to the west and surrounded by sea to its east. With the treacherous waterway for shipping and the onslaught of the incendiary weapon called Greek fire that would turn aggressive ships into flaming wrecks. The Arabs besieged 
Constantinople twice, once in the 7th century and then again in the 8th century. And on the second occasion, it was the Isaurian ruler, Leo III, who led the defence of the city, and he would be assisted by the leader of a new entity that had emerged on the western banks of the Black Sea called the Bulgars. The Bulgarians When we think of Bulgaria, we think of the modern European country with its Slavic language and its Cyrillic alphabetic script which we most commonly associate with Russia. Bulgaria is a Balkan state often considered to be predominantly of Slavic ethnicity. However, the origins of the Bulgars point to a different area of the world and to those who are not aware may be a surprising origin. The Bulgars actually migrated into the lands of the modern country of Bulgaria and like so many steppe-based cultures before them, they had migrated from the east. Specifically, they had migrated from around the lands of the northern Caucasus and the Volga River Valley and they were of Turkic origin. They were semi-nomadic and skilled horsemen. They settled an area north of the Black Sea during the 7th century which is historically referred to as Old Great Bulgaria. This would have brought them to the attention of the Byzantine Empire who had control of the Crimean Peninsula during this period. Old Great Bulgaria was established on lands occupied by Slavs who had been forced into the lands of the Avars to the west. With more Turks in the shape of the Hazars approaching from the east, the Bulgars had to abandon their lands and so they dispersed with a large number migrating into the lands of the Slavs and the Avars and settling the lands of the modern country of Bulgaria in the late 7th century. The Slavic peoples pushed into the Balkans by this geographical shift are distinguished as the South Slavs and the first Bulgarian empire is characterised by this Bulgar-Slavic fusion of peoples. This empire was established in around the year 681 in lands formerly controlled by the Byzantines whose attentions had been diverted elsewhere. Despite the fact that the Bulgars had effectively stolen Byzantine lands, there were positive connections between the two peoples in the earliest years of Bulgar existence on the international radar. Their ancestral chieftain Kubrat, the ruler of the Onogur Bulgars and the man credited with the establishment of Old Great Bulgaria in the 7th century, is suggested to have been baptised in Constantinople in or around the reign of Emperor Heraclius. After the establishment of the first Bulgarian Empire, the Bulgarians would assist the Byzantines in their defence of Constantinople during the Second Arab Siege in 717. And although we often lazily refer to Greek fire, the incendiary weapon that seems to save the day, the role of the Bulgars and their brutal clash with the Umayyad warriors is not maybe given enough credit with reports of many thousands of Arabs killed specifically by the Bulgarians. The Bulgarians spent the remainder of the century dealing with internal conflicts 
and attempting to stop the new empire from imploding. The Byzantines would naturally be very comfortable to see one of their close neighbours struggling and were readily exploiting the situation where appropriate by stealing land and attempting to prolong the agony of the state. The stage was set for a great and legendary Bulgarian leader to ascend to power and it would come in the form of Khan Krum the Fearsome in 803. He would mop up the lands of the ailing Avar Khaganate and turn the Bulgarian Empire into a major European player now on the eastern borders of Frankish imperial influence. Krum would have no regard for the Byzantines, declaring war against them and their Christian principles. When the Byzantine Emperor Nikiforos I took an army into Bulgarian territory, Krum would raise an army for total war and successfully trap Nikiforos and his army in the treacherous mountain passes of the Balkan Mountains. Legend tells us that Krum would take the Emperor Nikiforos's skull line it with silver and use it as a drinking cup to toast the Bulgarian victory. Understandably, this would do little for the relationship between the two nations. New fortifications were built in defence of Constantinople which were able to prevent Krum from ransacking the city in the aftermath. Despite Krum's anti-Christian sentiments, a few decades after his reign, another Khan called Boris, a descendant of Krum, made the bold move of Christianising Bulgaria. But he was shrewd about his approach, choosing to hedge his bets by showing degrees of loyalty to both the Christian patriarchates of Constantinople and Rome, and establishing a hybrid Bulgarian Orthodox Christian church. Boris would change his name to Michael, but would be careful to declare his new church a patriarchate in its own right, therefore not accountable to another Christian patriarchate. A new alphabet was commissioned to aid with the translation of Christian scriptures into the Slavic tongue of the Bulgarians, and this would be the precursor to what would become the Cyrillic script that we still see in use in Bulgaria Ukraine and Russia today, as well as other places. The breakup of the Frankish Empire earlier in the century had enabled the Bulgarian Empire to breathe a little easier, and with the Arabs causing headaches for the Byzantines, the Bulgarian Empire expanded and became a serious threat to the Byzantines. So the Byzantines commissioned the help of a peoples residing in the steppe lands to the north called the Magyars to try and suppress the Bulgarian dominance of the region. The Bulgarians, led by the very capable Simeon I, who is known to history as Tsar Simeon the Great, would commission the Pecheneg Turks to neutralise the Magyars, but despite this successful tactic, Tsar Simeon was also still not able to breach the walls of Constantinople but he would ensure that the Byzantines would submit a substantial tribute to him and this would lead to a golden age in Bulgarian history. Part of the Bulgarian success was the absence of a mighty nation on their northern fringes but this would change during the 10th century as the Magyars had established a wealthy nation to their west which we know as Hungary 
and Scandinavians had migrated and settled lands to the east, which we refer to as the Kievan Rus. Both of these entities were now a threat to the Bulgarians, and the Byzantines were ready to take advantage of these distractions, as the Bulgarians had been happy to do to them in decades gone by. The Byzantines encouraged the Rus to invade Bulgaria, and after the Rus were successful, the Byzantines stepped in and kicked the Rus out of Bulgaria, taking the spoils for themselves. Basil the Bulgar Slayer Basil was the eldest son of the Byzantine Emperor, and is named Basil Porphyrogenitus. The name Porphyrogenitus is significant because it specifically refers to the fact that Basil was born in the purple. And what we mean by that is that his father was the actual Byzantine emperor when Basil was born. His father was Romanos II, an emperor whose reputation was not good in that he is alleged to have behaved irresponsibly, preferring alcohol and sex to dealing with the vulnerabilities of the Byzantine Empire. Whether or not it was strictly true, Romanos became ill and died in his twenties, which was a problem for Basil, who was still just five years old. His mother married the Byzantine military general called Nikephoros Phokas, who would adopt Basil and his younger brother as his own and rule as Nikephoros II. Nikephoros also died after a short reign and was succeeded by his nephew, another military general called John Simiscus, who ruled as John I. So Basil spent his childhood observing military leaders rule his nation and would undoubtedly learn from them, as well as having the benefit of being able to read the scholarly texts of his own grandfather, the Emperor Constantine VII, in order to learn about the diplomacy of the region. This would give young Basil a solid foundation of knowledge for when the time came when he would come of age and wish to rule the empire for himself. In order for both Nikephoros and John to rule relatively legitimately, they would need to rule alongside the child emperor Basil. However, when John died suddenly, aged just 50, Basil was on the cusp of coming of age to lead the empire in his own right as a young adult. One of the important eunuchs of the Byzantine court was a man called Basil the Chamberlain, and he went behind the back of the young emperor Basil to instate an alternative emperor. But the young emperor was able to have the eunuch arrested and exiled, giving him a strong start to his majority. Basil was a pious and austere emperor, choosing military action to cement his reputation over wearing fine clothing and having an impressive look. Tsar Samuel of Bulgaria The Byzantines had sneaked into Bulgaria after the Kievan Rus' invasion and kicked them out, making Bulgaria a province of the Byzantine Empire. But a large portion of the lands of the Bulgarian Empire remained unconquered and not subject to the Byzantines, 
and mainly this was based in and around Macedonia to the west. A powerful Bulgarian noble called Count Nicholas passed away during the Byzantine conquest, but his four sons rebelled against Byzantine rule and kept the Macedonian-based lands of Bulgaria independent. The four sons were called David, Moses, Aaron and Samuel, and they would form the Komitopuli dynasty, literally the sons of the count. The Byzantine Christian Church had developed a strained relationship with the Roman Catholic Christian Church, governed from Rome, and the Western Bulgarians, who were loyal to the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, appealed to the Pope to recognise the remaining Bulgarian state as an authentic nation, despite Byzantine attempts to declare the Bulgarian Empire as conquered and the crown owned. The Bulgarians and the Byzantines continued to skirmish along their borders. David and Moses lost their lives during these skirmishes, and when Basil II took control of the Byzantine Empire, he attempted to befriend Aaron in order to turn him against Samuel and subjugate the remainder of the Bulgarians. This plot seemed to fail as Samuel would turn out to become the sole ruler of Western Bulgaria, and we're not completely sure of Aaron's fate due to the sketchiness of historical records. Samuel would make it his business to defy the Byzantines by raiding their lands and not waiting for Basil and the Byzantines to strike first. Basil had a number of issues to deal with back home and was not necessarily able to give the Bulgarians his full attention initially, but the aggressions of Samuel and the Bulgarians meant that Basil would have to act. Basil would besiege the Bulgarian city of Serdica, which is the modern-day city of Sofia, but the siege failed and Basil barely escaped with his life after the Bulgarians pursued and slaughtered the Byzantine army. Samuel had successfully sent the Byzantines packing and the embarrassment of Basil's defeat contributed towards a period of civil unrest in the Byzantine Empire. This would allow Samuel some room to consolidate his empire which would include the subjugation of the Serbs around the turn of the second millennium. However, consolidation was about the limits for Samuel who knew that his lands lived in the shadows of the Byzantine Empire and that he would have to continually fend off Basil's aggressions, which would help to keep the nuisance that was the Bulgarians in their place. Basil would destroy some of Samuel's lands periodically to keep him on the back foot, allowing Basil to be more considerate about when he chose to engage in significant warfare with Samuel. Prelude to the Battle Basil seemed to be determined to chip away at Samuel's Western Bulgarians, knowing that Samuel was unable to rebuild quicker than Basil could destroy. For Samuel, it would come to a point where if he didn't try to hit back, Basil would simply overrun the Bulgarians, and the Bulgarians would just simply not have enough to be able to defend themselves. In order for Basil to reach the Macedonian lands of Western Bulgaria, he would need to negotiate the mountainous terrain of the Balkan Peninsula and these mountains could present a strategical opportunity for Samuel and the Bulgarians if used wisely. 
Samuel understood that Basil would lead his forces along the most obvious route into his territory by following the course of the Struma River northwards and then turning west into a pass between two mountain ranges, specifically the Belasica mountain range and the Ograzden mountain to the north. Samuel would build fortifications within this mountain pass in order to be prepared for Basil's next venture into his lands, and would develop earthworks that would hinder Basil's pathway for his army. The mountain pass is identifiable as the river valley, called the Strumitsa, which feeds into the Struma itself, and by following the path of the Strumitsa westwards toward the town of Strumitsa. The Battle of Collinium Basil II of the Byzantine Empire led his army along the Strumitsa Valley to bully the lands of the Bulgarian renegades. The level of knowledge that Basil had of the Bulgarian preparations is unknown, but we certainly do know that he would have encountered Samuel's earthworks and palisades within the valley and would have created a plan of action which did not involve retreat. Basil likely set up camp and anticipated a situation of attrition where he would have to attack the Bulgarian positions in order to continue his raids. Basil attacked the constructed defences of the Bulgarians but was soon to discover that Samuel had the upper hand as the well-fortified valley was able to weather the attack and even cost the Byzantines a number of war casualties in the process. While this was going on, Samuel would exercise another part of his plan. He would send an army into Byzantine lands and the port city of Thessaloniki, which would have likely been an important supply source for Basil's army. Basil had a difficult choice. Should he remain in the valley and continue to look forward to breaking down the Bulgarians, or should he turn back and defend his very important city of Thessaloniki? Basil stayed in the valley. When the Bulgarian army led by the general Nistoritsa approached the city of Thessaloniki, they would discover a very well-prepared military governor of the city called Theophylact Botaniatis was waiting on them. Rather than wait for the city to be besieged, Botaniates led a force outside the city to engage with Nestoritsa and he was successful in repelling the attack and then he would actually lead his army to link up with Basil's army in the Strumitsa Valley, enhancing the Byzantine forces in the pass. Despite the size of the force, Basil was genuinely struggling to manage the Bulgarian defences and would need to think outside the box for a solution. One of Basil's generals, called Nikiforos Xiphias, would devise a plan where he would take the forces under his own command up the mountainside to be able to navigate around the defences of the Bulgarians. This plan would be brilliant, as he was able to compromise the position of the Bulgarian army and cause enough disarray to enable Basil to start to make an impact on the Bulgarians directly in front of him, who did not know whether to defend the front or the rear of their position. 
On the day of the 29th of July, 1014, Basil ravaged the Bulgarian army in the Stromitsa Valley. Samuel desperately escaped the scene, heading back deeper into his own territory, while thousands of Bulgarians were either killed or captured within the valley. Despite Samuel's initial successes, suddenly the tables were turned and the Bulgarians were either trapped in the valley or retreating. The amount of Bulgarian prisoners of war is not completely certain, but we can feel confident that we are talking in the thousands. Basil would pursue the Bulgarians back down the valley toward the city of Stromitsa. Aftermath Even though the episode in history referred to as the Battle of Chalidian was now over, the campaign was still on as the Byzantine forces continued down the pass, having captured thousands of Bulgarians and wanting to take the important strategical city of Stromitsa at the west of the Stromitsa Valley. Samuel had fled on the back of his son's horse, narrowly escaping capture himself. Basil would instruct the governor of Thessaloniki, Theophylact Botaniates, to press on toward the city of Stromitsa and to clear the route to the city and expel any remaining Bulgarian forces there. The city would be defended by the same brave and gallant son of Samuel who had rescued his father, and his name was Gavril Radomir. After Botaniates cleared the route, he would attempt to link back up with Basil's main army. But Gavril Radomir had other ideas, having initially allowed Botaniates to clear the path unhindered before surrounding him with Bulgarian forces and slaughtering him and his army before they could make it back to Basil to report the successful clearance. When Basil found out the fate of Botaniates and his army, the Bulgarians would feel the full weight of Basil's medieval fury. Basil had to give up his attempt to besiege the Bulgarian city of Stromitsa and retreat back to the east but he still had a considerable number of Bulgarian prisoners of war. His next action would cement Basil's legacy to history. 15,000 is often quoted as the number of Bulgarian prisoners taken by the Byzantines. This entire contingent of the Bulgarian army was separated into groups of 100. In each group of 100... 99 men were completely blinded. But we're not sure if this gruesome act was done by gouging or by burning with a heated prod. This may not have been a completely unusual Byzantine practice either. The 100th man was blinded in one eye only. And this would only be so that he could lead the blinded 99 back to their homelands to relay a very visual message of the absence of Byzantine mercy on their enemies. The blinded thousands reportedly made it back to the Bulgarian-held lands, where they were greeted by their Khan, Samuel. 
Some sources tell us that Samuel saw his blinded army and had a heart attack and died on the spot. But I have also read that Samuel suffered from a stroke after the return of his army and died a couple of days later, which seems more believable if the stress of realising that the Bulgarians were likely to be facing a certain collapse of their remaining nation due to an inability to deploy an effective fighting force. Samuel's son, Gavril Vladimir, would continue to try to resist the Byzantines, but he was betrayed by his cousin, Ivan Vladislav, who murdered him the following year and stole the Bulgarian throne. Ivan Vladislav would attempt to make a truce with Basil, but this attempt fell over and Ivan Vladislav would desperately try to raise a defence force capable of taking on the Byzantines. But the faith of the Bulgarian nobles had been lost and the Bulgarians would show a strong desire to submit to Basil rather than face his wrath. Ivan Vladislav lost his life in ambiguous circumstances while the city of Dyrrachium was under siege by the Byzantines. The remains of the Bulgarian Empire were absorbed into the Byzantine Empire and Basil II would become immortalised by being remembered to history as Basil the Bulgar Slayer, echoing back to his brutal treatment of the Bulgarian prisoners of war. Basil symbolically marched on the Bulgarian city of Serdica, modern Sofia, in 1018 and signified the absorption of Bulgaria into the Byzantine Empire. Basil would then continue campaigning in the lands of Georgia and Armenia successfully before he would draw up plans to attack the Kalbids, who were a Muslim dynasty ruling the island of Sicily. Before Basil could carry out the attack, he died in the year 1025, just a month away from achieving a 50-year reign, longer than any other Byzantine or Roman emperor. The Byzantine Empire would never be as powerful again after the achievements of Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Um, we're going back through some of the um, some of the confrontations and conflicts um, of the Byzantine period. And uh, next week we'll be continuing on with a, a very much more consequential battle uh, at Manzikert uh, before we look at what actually ultimately happened to the Byzantines um, in uh, Constantinople during the 15th century. So um, some really important episodes uh, coming up. And uh, I must admit, I really, really enjoyed uh, writing the story of the Battle of uh, Chalidian and uh, the subsequent Battle of Stromitsa. Um, it really is a, a great story about two incredible um, national leaders in uh, Basil II and uh, Sar Samuel. And um, really is a great story. I really enjoyed that. And I think um, it's good for the health of the podcast. I, I love uh, the fact that we're coming nearer to the modern day. And as much as I really, really do love the story of human evolution 
um, the, the wonders of uh, Gobekli Tepe and the pyramids and Stonehenge, uh, the story of the late Bronze Age collapse and the whole intrigue of that. As much as I love um, talking about ancient Greece and Rome and uh, the, some of the characters and, and developments of modern society, um, the nearer we get to today in the modern age, um, I think the more excited I get for the stories that are to come. So um, once again, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and looking forward to next week already. The Ancient World Cup so this week's Ancient World Cup, we was uh, we were looking at Group I in the uh, in the first round. Of course, uh, we've got sixteen groups of four teams, and uh, we're putting them to the vote each week as we as we look at each group in turn. And uh, the two uh, the two teams that get the, the most amount of votes will proceed to the uh, to the knockout rounds, while the the uh, remaining two teams will be eliminated from the competition now this last week we had uh, the the four teams there were the britons who were the uh, the sort of the pre-roman uh, population of of uh, the british Isles. Uh, the zapotecs who were based in monte alban the centralized in monte alban in central america uh, the elamites who um were pretty much the occupants of uh, the the persian uh, epicenter of the of of Persian culture, uh, the Elamites occupied those lands, uh, pre like before them, and the Berbers, who were the indigenous people of of North Africa and the Maghreb. Um, so let's see uh, what the final result was. Now the winners of the group, uh, with forty four percent of the vote, were the Britons. Um, so highly interesting that I was sort of almost not expecting that to be honest with you being uh, being the, the fact that we're talking about the lands of my home and uh, we're talking about um, Queen Boudicca of the Iceni and that, that kind of thing the Britons um, and uh, they've won the group I'm quite surprised um, in second place um, with 26% of the vote uh, were the Berbers. So the Berbers have um, gone through with the Britons and um, that's very interesting as well. So um, the the African peoples um, that uh, were indigenous to the North African lands, they've made it through, which uh, leaves us to um, announce that with 18%, uh, the Zapotecs are eliminated. They're our first team from the Americas to be eliminated and then with uh, just thirteen uh, percent of the vote, the Elamites also leave the competition. So there we go. That's the conclusion of Group I. And uh, next week we'll be looking at Group J. So let's have a look at the teams that are in Group J. We've got the Seleucids, who were the um, the result of the um, the breakup of the of Alexander the Great's great Macedonian Empire the Seleucids really took control of the lands of uh, the former lands of the Achaemenid Persians uh, then we've also got the Lydians who um, were pretty much the the uh, the occupants of Anatolia um, or the most powerful um, emergence of uh, the the lands of Anatolia which of course before the late Bronze Age collapse were 
uh, ruled by the Hittites. Uh, but after the late Bronze Age collapse, there was a number of societies uh, which we commonly see referred to as the Neo-Hittites. The Lydians were the ones that became the most dominant ones and were ultimately conquered by the Achaemenid Persians uh, under Cyrus the Great, who defeated the last great Lydian king, Croesus. Um, the third team, um, are one of my, like, I've got a soft spot for these guys. I don't know why, really, but I just, I'm fascinated by their mysteriousness. The Tsiongnu of um, the eastern uh, steppe, um, very much, um, very much part of the story of Han China, the emergence of Han China. They were pretty much there main rivals um in the uh in the establishment of the silk road and uh so they were the nomadic steppe culture of the east and uh finally the fourth team we've got um rather interestingly are the parthians who uh, have been drawn in the same group as the seleucids now the parthians were really the ones who uh, mopped up all of the lands of the seleucids when the seleucids declined the parthians were the ones who pushed them back into the Levant where they ultimately got uh, consumed by the Romans. So uh, we've got the, the Seleucids and the Parthians, uh, both rulers of Persian lands, but not Persian in uh, ethnic origin. Um, and then uh, coupled in with the Lydians and the Xiongnu, uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing how you vote uh, over the course of the next week. Be sure to go to the social media pages of Twitter, Facebook and to the Tapper Talk discussion forum in order to vote. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if you listen to the podcast and you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then you can. Just go along to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon um, link on the top menu and uh, proceed uh, through to uh, the forum where you can make a monthly contribution. And uh, all your monthly contributions go to great links to help me to buy equipment and uh, resources. Uh, my ever-growing library is, is all thanks to you guys. And it enables me to make much better podcasts going forward. So um, when you do sign up to make a monthly contribution... I automatically uh, place you into a very special place called the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And these are those uh, wonderful people who support the podcast by uh, making a practical financial donation. And uh, we honour those people and new members this week, are Ross Othern Reeves, Paulie Martin or Paulie Martin, Amardeep Dagar, Stefan Perrin and Dan. So thank you all to each of you for your uh, for your very kind contribution and very uh, kind uh, donations and, and will really help me to make this podcast bigger and better going forward. So uh, I can't thank you enough. Um, we uh, we had a patron one one of the um, one of the rewards uh, for. Um, making a significant contribution um, is, uh, and that's over an accumulated uh, amount of time as well. So we we don't just ask you to make a monumental monthly donation in order to qualify, which is often the case with uh, Patreon. 
um, I will count up your accumulated uh, contributions over any amount of time and still offer you the reward for for reaching the threshold. And uh, one of our um, great friends, Mr. Eric Young, who who often writes into the podcast and has sort of been with us for some time, has um, asked if I could uh, write an episode on medieval weaponry. And um, I thought that this was a fantastic subject to recommend because I did cover this uh, subject in the ancient world and certainly in the ancient volume. Um, But I didn't really make any kind of plan to write an episode about medieval weaponry. And um, the fact that Eric's brought it up has made me question myself as to why. And um, to be honest, um, there is no reason why. I think it's an excellent suggestion. So at some point down the line, uh, we will insert a medieval weaponry episode and it's all thanks to Eric so thanks for the wonderful suggestion Eric uh, we'll look forward to doing that um, I got a message from Conrad Barsky who's also a History of the World podcast Illuminati member and, and he's just put to throw out a story idea I'm fascinated by single source keystone artifacts from history for example for instance there are things uh, we only know from the Sumerian king list the Beowulf manuscript or Historica Britonum. I would love a podcast on interesting artefacts of this type, not to discuss how they were found or who found them, etc. I think that's kind of boring. But looking specifically at what we view as accepted beliefs of the past that derive from such random single sources. I think this is interesting because it shows how precarious our grasp of the past is that so much of it comes from these single sources. This, uh, thanks, comrade, for the message. Uh, this is one of the beauties of ancient history. Of course, when we come more into the modern age, we've got so many sources that we can reference for um, the stories. So, like, I mean, if we look at the character of someone like Adolf Hitler, there are so many different angles uh, that we can come from because there's so many different reference points that we can cite for the man himself, first-hand evidence of, of who he was and what he was like. And um, if we look back into uh, ancient history, then we might only know of someone, so so like Gilgamesh, for example, we might only hear about him from the Epic of Gilgamesh and then recognise his name from a a king list that has been recorded. So like what we know about him is scant and um, we can be assumptious about it. Uh, but if um, if we are assumptions about it, which, you know, we've, we've got every right to be as historians in order to tell a story. Uh, but also we should state that we could be completely wrong about it. So um, fascinating um, message, comrade, and maybe something that can be explored uh, later on, perhaps. Who knows? Um Lassie Hildry has written in putting, Dear Chris, thanks for a wonderful podcast. I am wondering, are you selling your scripts? I think you can make some serious money. Um, to be honest with you, I mean, I don't think I, I necessarily... It's a, it's a great suggestion, and thank you so much for caring about my financial uh, position. But um, I, I do think that the the beauty of the scripts that I write is that the fact that they are brought to you in a podcast form, and I think that's the popularity of uh, what I write, is the fact that it is a podcast rather than just a script and uh you know maybe maybe there is 
the means to make money by selling script but then also I'm not an academic as well so like I I certainly write um more for entertainment purposes than history purposes so um when I write uh, history like for example someone a podcaster such as Zach Twamley for example uh, writes as you know someone who I would regard as a genuine historian um not like me for example who is probably you know more accurately described as an amateur historian so um you know I know people will have differing opinions about that but um for that reason maybe uh, scripts to sell scripts maybe I don't know maybe there's a degree of plagiarism on my part or you know sometimes I, I suppose you could say that um there are my own personal discussions about history so that would be the counter argument to that but um yeah no no plans to do that at the moment but thanks for the suggestion um john uh polifka hopefully i've pronounced your name correctly is put um happy new year i hope this letter finds you well i'm reaching out to inform you that since our last correspondence i have launched a website secret of the pyramids as mentioned in our prior communication my theory addresses the integral role that water played in transporting and building materials in the giza plateau during khufu's time and that water was a critical factor in all aspects of constructing the great pyramid uh, secretsofthepyramids.com serves as a platform to showcase all elements of my theory through comprehensive descriptions accompanied by detailed illustrations and videos demonstrating my theory's viability. I'm very pleased to announce the recent addition of an animated video which unites all aspects of my theory in an easy-to-understand and, and visually entertaining medium. With broad appeal, the video is available on the homepage of the website and can be found via this link. Um, I would be honoured if you would take the time to visit and respectfully request your feedback regarding my feelings. Regards, John Polifka. Um, thanks, John. Um, I'm very honoured uh, to, to, that you've taken the time to actually write that email and uh, respectfully request my feedback. Um, so I can, um, I can throw that right back at you. Um, I have asked John to share um, his work on... Um, my social media, um, you know, uh, our social media, my social media is our social media, basically. It's a, it's a place where we can share. So um, if you're interested in John's work, then just uh, uh, the web address, I believe, is secretofthepyramids.com. And, and I'll be sure to be taking a look at that when I get some spare time, John. So thank you so much um, for uh, let me know that you've written on such a fascinating subject, which it re really is. Um, Dan has written in saying, Hello, Chris. Currently on Volume 3, Episode 12, Ancient Egypt. I listened through Spotify from Chicago, Illinois. I love the podcast and just became a patron. I know that you call yourself a humble purveyor of information, but organising it is the job and you are fantastic at it. And I also appreciate your conclusions, whether it be how hominids, uh, hominids made it to Australia or the various roles to fill in the first villages or the political region uh, reasons behind uh, recording Siege of Lakish, etc. Um, well, thanks, Dan, and thanks for supporting the podcast. And I'm glad that um, some of the work has sort of really started getting you thinking. And I think, you know, in order to make the podcast unique and 
um, personal, I think, yeah, it is important that I give you my own personal perspective. And likewise, I'm always very interested in in hearing from you, uh, from hearing from you guys. Um, often getting messages um, that really do make me think about um, some of the stories of history from a different perspective. Uh, Priyank Sharma has written in saying, Hi Chris, just want to thank you for covering the Byzantine Empire in such good detail. Uh, up until now I'd heard about them in bits and pieces, but your series on them was amazingly comprehensive. Can't wait for the next four episodes. Please keep up the awesome work. I'll be honest with you, I've really loved writing about the Byzantines Priyank. It's a really fascinating period of history and that like when you when you analyze it we're really talking about a thousand years of history all wrapped up into sort of one period oh sorry i lost my sound there that was a bit of a technical issue sorry about that i'm back now okay so um going on to reviews um ken hd uh, from the United States of America, but history of the world, intense, straightforward, detailed, well read. Thank you very much, Ken. And then, um, and then, Moon Bunny Baby from the United States of America has put good work, nice survey of world history. Music is horrible and makes the show unsuitable for bedtime. Uh, well, there we go again. Now we were talking about the music again. Um, certainly, um. Someone else made a comment on the music and and sort of stated that they didn't think it was uh, necessarily the fault of whoever composed it. Uh, necessarily, might not have been an expert in music composition. I, I must admit that the person who did compose the music is certainly not an expert in music composition. But uh, listen, if 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 anyone thinks that they can. Uh, reinvent the theme tune then by all means by all means give it a go but i'll be i'd love to hear from you but um yeah so sorry if the i know a lot of people have criticized the the new music and uh, uh what a shame uh, what a shame maybe um maybe there's something we can do about that down the line but anyway thanks ever so much for the positive reviews really do appreciate them and uh hopefully uh hopefully everyone is still able to enjoy the podcast now, I'm not going to read out messages on other forums this week just because we're running short of time, but um, all that remains for me to do is wrap up this week's show. Uh, thank you so much for listening once again, and uh, next week we'll be concentrating on the Battle of Manzikert. So we'll be staying with the Byzantines, but we'll be going to a very uh, important battle from later in the same century, later in the 11th century, when the Seljuk Turks, who we've already talked about in an earlier episode, um, come into conflict with the Byzantine Empire, who uh, since the great victory at Chalidian, uh, really sort of fell on a bit of a rough period of um, sort of, you know, a bit of um, intense sort of rivalry for the Byzantine throne and, and a lot of internal uh, civil conflict that... Uh, that didn't do the Byzantines any favour. We're going to explore that next week and find out about the Battle of Manzikert and uh, basically what influence that had, what fundamental influence that had on the future of Anatolia, the future of the Byzantine Empire and the emergence of the Crusades, um, which uh, this was a fundamental part of that. So... Um, 
not to be missed next week. A very, very important medieval battle, a, a world-changing battle. So if you if you miss next week, you must be bonkers. Anyway, thanks ever so much for listening. And once again, we'll see you next week. And don't forget, uh, for the rest of the week, please be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.